Well, it's a blessing to have children, but I, it's always a little discouraging when the place clears out when you dismiss the kids. <laughs> but that is a blessing to see. Uh, a church without kids doesn't have much of a future, amen? So we're grateful for those that invest in those and our children and growing them. John chapter 6. Let me ask you a question today. Not, not a spiritual question, but who are my bread people? Who likes, who is as obsessed with bread as my wife? Amen? Uh, alright, so we got some people that like bread. I, uh, I'm not as, I'm not a, as big a fan as my wife is about bread, but I'll tell you this, when I walk into the house and when I smell her making, uh, homemade bread, I'm smelling the bread, I'm not smelling her, understand, but I, when I smell homemade bread baking, I know I married the right woman, amen. That is a blessing. Happiness is the smell of fresh baked bread, amen. Uh, Pat, our poet Robert Browning said, If thou tastest a crust of bread, thou tastest all the stars and all the heavens. Uh, I don't know about that, but, you know, that's some people really like bread. That's what we're going to talk about today. Let's talk about bread. In our text G, that we're going to read here in a minute, Jesus Christ is meeting with a crowd in Capernaum, and this is one of the great bread texts of the Bible. It presents Jesus Christ as the bread of life, and John uh, 6.35, we'll see in a minute, and it compares Jesus Christ and salvation to bread. Let's read a few verses here, starting at verse number 22, of John chapter 6. The day following, when the people which stood on the other side of the sea saw that there was none other boat there, save that one whereunto his disciples were entered, and Jesus went not with his disciples into the boat, but that his disciples were gone away alone. Howbeit there came other boats from Tiberias, nigh unto the place where they did eat bread, after that the Lord had given thanks. When the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, neither his disciples, they also took shipping and came to Capernaum, seeking for Jesus." And when they had found him on the other side of the sea, they said unto him, Rabbi, when camest thou hither? Jesus answered uh, them and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, ye seek me not because ye saw the miracles, but because ye did eat of the loaves and were filled. Labor not for the meat which perisheth, but for the meat which endureth unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto, thee, unto you, for him hath God the Father sealed. Then said they unto him, what shall we do that we might do the works of God? Jesus answered and said unto them, This is the work of God that ye believe on him which he, he hath sent. Then said they therefore unto him, What sign showest thou then that we may see and believe thee? What dost thou work? Our fathers did eat manna in the desert, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Moses gave you not the bread from heaven, but my Father gave you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven and giveth life unto the world. And said they unto him, Lord, evermore give us this bread. And here's the verse, verse 35. Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger. He that believeth on me shall never thirst. Father, I pray you'd help us this morning. As we look at this passage, look at this text, and learn what it means for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. For years, we've used the phrase, the best thing since sliced bread. When we're saying something is really good. Because, after all, how wonderful is sliced bread? Really, amen? Not a blessing? You don't have to tear it into chunks. I mean, it's sliced. That's a great thing. And so we've used that phrase. You ever wonder what they said before? 
Before there was sliced bread, that was the best thing since what? Well, today I want to preach for a few minutes on the best thing before sliced bread. Amen? And after, for that matter. Uh, as this chapter opens here, we find Jesus preaching to a huge multitude. And as he finishes his message, well, this is the beginning of the chapter, part we didn't read. As he finishes his message, we know the story. There is a vast number of people there. It says 5,000 men and their families. There could have been 15, uh, up to 20,000 uh, people there. And it, it depends if the people had children like the Yoders and the Pankinans or if they had uh, like other people. But uh, if they had lots of children like we like to have, then uh, there would be more people there. But let's say 15, 20,000 people are there, and Jesus is finishing up his message. The disciples want to send them away. Jesus realizes they are hungry, really, because they, they sat and listened to him all day. And so Jesus says, we're going to feed them. And he and his disciples, uh, he instructs his disciples to pass out this one kid's sack lunch, and with the uh, five small loaves and two fishes, they feed 5,000 men and their families. Amazing miracle, the feeding of the 5,000. After they're done... They take up 12 baskets that are filled. They not only had enough to feed everybody, they had far more left over than they started with. Now, enough for one basket per doubting disciple, uh, if you want to apply it that way. So this amazing scene became the object lesson for what Jesus is going to preach and part of the passage that we've just read. The day after the miracle is where our passage started, and I think it's interesting here, uh, a crowd of people, this the same people that were there for the feeding of the 5,000 that had gotten fed, they're now seeking for Jesus the next day, and they went to Capernaum. They wanted to uh, find Christ in hopes of getting more food. Because when you put a free buffet in the mix, folks show up for that kind of thing. Uh, it amazes me every time Home Depot or one of those uh, tool stores serves those horrible hot dogs for a uh, little more than nothing or for free, and people flock to it, amen, because we like, who doesn't like free food, amen? That's a blessing. So this encounter with them started pleasantly enough at first, but the longer they speak with Jesus, the more hostile they become. They ask three questions. We read them this morning. I want to look at them. Analyze the three questions they ask, what they meant for them, what they mean for us. The first one is found in verse 25. They ask the question, when camest thou hither? Now, this is the funny part of the story. Uh, it starts out with them looking for Jesus. In verse 24, it said that they saw that Jesus was not there, neither his disciples. The day before, they had this tremendous feast, this big miracle that was uh, uh, that, that, that fed all these people. According to Mark 6.45, Jesus sent the multitudes away that evening, but evidently, some did not go very far. They hung around. Can you imagine the conversations after the feeding of the 5,000? I mean, this isn't some, this is pretty exciting stuff to be a part of. Now, it says later that the disciples did not consider the loaves, but I think the multitudes did. This is an amazing thing. That many people were fed. And so they were hanging around, they were talking about it, and, and uh, lingering in, in the excitement of the miracle. According to verse 22, they had seen the disciples leave without Jesus. So they know Jesus didn't go with them. And now they expected to see Jesus again. And they were searching for him. They were trying to find him. They were serious about looking for him. When they could not find him, they got in some boats and they headed over to Capernaum looking for Christ. Uh, John notes in verse 23 that the, there had come other boats. 
probably blown in from that storm the night before. Remember these sequence of events. We have the feeding of the 5,000, the horrible storm that Jesus walked on the water and, and, uh, and calmed, and now this is the next morning, and there were more boats there. Maybe they were blown over or they came over for business. But anyway, these boat owners saw the group of people that needed to be transported across, and so they did. Now, can we all agree it's a good thing to seek for Jesus, isn't it? That's a blessing. Each and every one of us ought to always be seeking Him. But before we give too much credit to these folks in the story here, uh, we need to go a little further. As we progress, we learn that most of them ended up uh, forsaking Jesus, leaving Him. And many people still come to church like this today. Uh, they come, their interest is not genuine, or at least it's not spiritual, uh, but it is carnal. Maybe it is curiosity, or maybe it's for other reasons other than uh, the fact that we need to hear the Word of God and we need to apply it to our life. And by the way, I'm glad anybody comes for any reason. But we ought to want to go to church to hear from God and uh, apply these things to our life. Now look at verse 25. They found him on the other side of the sea. Now maybe their motivation was poor, but the principle is good here. Seek and ye shall find. Matthew chapter 7, verse 7. Because if we do seek after him, we will find him. Draw nigh to me and I will draw nigh to you, the Bible says. And so here, uh, by the, we, we see that success does not come to the idol. Success doesn't come from sitting, it comes from sweat. It comes from uh, effort. And they tried to find him and they did find him. And when they find him, they're a little confused. And they ask the question, Rabbi, when camest thou hither? Now this is humorous, I think, because sometimes we read these texts or we miss some of the nuances in, uh, in the Bible and, and some of the different uh, uh, semantics. They wondered how Jesus could already be in Capernaum because they had seen the disciples get in the boat. He didn't go with them. So they, they saw that he didn't come by boat because the disciples had gone off without him. Verse 22. And there is a road going between Capernaum and Bethsaida. That is where they had the feeding of the 5,000. But uh, he wouldn't have went at night, and he wasn't seen during the day. And so they knew he didn't come across that road. Many people were there. Uh, we know how he got there, don't we? He just walked over the water. He took himself a little shortcut out over the water. He didn't have to walk on land. He didn't have to take a boat. He's the Lord Jesus Christ. He can just walk on top of the water. Now, for obvious reasons... He did not answer the question that way. Uh, do you think he could have told him that? Yeah, you remember that storm last night, that really bad storm that stopped all of a sudden? That storm, I walked on the waves, and that's how I got here so fast. Nobody would have believed him anyway. And so he, he avoids that. It, it, it was like a connecting flight where he walks out to the middle and catches his connection. Amen. The ship came the rest of the way with the uh, disciples. Miracle. So... For obvious reasons, he didn't answer the question. Better, he thought, to deal with the motivation problem, which is what he does. Look at what he says. You seek me not because you saw the miracles, but because you did eat of the loaves and were filled. These people were not interested in what Jesus had to say and how it applied to their life. They were interested in getting their stomachs filled. Uh, they were not even interested in his miracles, the Bible says here. One person said this. Faith which rests on the miracles is not the highest kind of faith, but it is better than no faith at all. But it seems they didn't even have that. They simply wanted a full stomach. They were more concerned about a hungry stomach than a needy soul. This is still the situation for many people today. 
Uh, they were like what the Apostle Paul referred to in Philippians 3.19, a person who is, whose God is their belly. And my, oh my, but isn't that true today? People's God is their belly. People refer, uh, this refers to people who are ruled by the sensual, the shameful, and the secular. Uh, they cared nothing about spiritual things, but went only after the physical and the material. They're like those who come to church seeking material help, but not spiritual help. They're like the ones who will show up for, uh, for carnival day at church, but they won't come to worship service at church. They're the ones who spend all their resources on temporary things, temporal things, but not spiritual things. They'll pay uh, a lot of money for someone to entertain them, but they will not come to where they are edified. Uh, they will spend more time in the houses of pleasure than in houses of prayer. You know the type of people I'm talking about. They're seeking after physical, not the spiritual. Hey, motive is important in spiritual matters. Amen? It's good to come to church, but why are we in church? What are we doing? What are we seeking after? And it's good to call ourselves a Christian, but let's make sure our motives are right. Do you remember when Paul talks about, I think 1 Corinthians 13, where he talks about us, we stand in front of the uh, judgment seat of Christ, and then we are uh, judged, uh, we have, we're essentially given a, uh, uh, we're given, for lack of a better word, a trophy, uh, and then it says we're judged by the fire. The fire will hit that trophy and will judge it for what sort it is. Not what size, but what sort. That's motives. Why did you do what you did? Oh, I taught a Sunday school of a thousand people. Why? What for? Was it to build your own kingdom or was it for the Lord? That's what we're judged on, the sort, the motives. This is important. The fact that Jesus read their heart here is also a warning to us. He does know everything in our heart. He knows not only what you do, but he knows why you do it. We may hide our motives from men, and many people do, but you will never hide your motives from God. He sees it. So Jesus in verse 27 says, labor not for the meat that perisheth. These people are concerned only about things that perish or things that will uh, one day pass away. Jesus denounces this attitude. This is uh, not Jesus by the way, promoting laziness. He never would do that. But it's a comparative statement. Not to labor primarily for temporal things. What he's talking about here is that our focus uh, is, is wrong if it's only on the life that is and not on the life that will be forever and ever. This is how this describes our world today. People giving their life for things that will not last. Money will not last. You can't take it with you. I heard about a fellow who had worked hard all of his life, became very wealthy. He saved all of his money. He was a real miser. And then he got cancer, and he knew that he did not have long to live, and he got, he, he, he got with his wife, and he said, when I die, he said, I want you to take all my money, all of it. You can turn it into diamonds or whatever to, to break it down into small, but I want you to put it in the casket with me when I die because I'm going to take it into the afterlife. Well, uh, he knew his wife was loyal and honest, and he knew that if she promised him, she would do what she said, and she promised with all her heart she'd put all his money in the casket with him when he died. He did die. He was stretched out in the casket there. and His wife was sitting on the front row with, uh, with her friend who did happen to know about the, the promise that was made. And, and uh, just before the uh, funeral people put the, closed the casket, the wife said, wait, just a minute, she walks up to the casket and she sets a, a box into the casket. They closed it down, locked it up, 
and rolled it away. She went back, sat with her friend, and their friend says, I know you were not fool enough to actually put his money in the casket with him. And his wife says, listen, I'm a Christian, and I promised him that I would do it. I promised I would put that money in the casket with him, and I can't lie. I can't go back on a promise. Her friends say, you mean you put all his wealth in that box with him? She says, I did. I liquidated all of his assets. I put everything in my account, and I wrote him a check for all of it. If he can cash it, he can have it. Amen? He can't cash it, and he can't have it, because you can't take it with you. Amen? That's the truth of life. You can't take it with you. You can't take anything. in. Really, the only thing that's on earth that you can take to heaven is the Word of God and the souls of men. That's the only thing we can take with us. We can't take anything. So why do we focus in our time and our talents and our treasures into something that passes away? I have with me today here the world's best bag of potato chips. This is salt and vinegar. Best flavor. Amen? Don't make that face. This is awesome. Uh, so the, uh, I was out with my son not too long ago, and we, I told him to get a bag of chips, and I saw him over there feeling which one had the most in it. Because look at how, look how nice and full that bag is. And yet when I open it up and look in, we got that much substance right there, and the rest of it's just air. It's nothing. Isn't that disappointing? And yet I buy these bag after bag, hoping maybe the next time there'll be something a little more in there. That's what we do with life. We just keep on investing into the same thing. We hope maybe, maybe the next time it'll bring satisfaction. Maybe if I get more, it'll give me some more fulfillment. But we find a little substance. Nothing wrong with things, by the way. Things are good. Toys are fine. There's nothing, as long as we don't cheat the Lord out of it. But uh, things are fine. That's the substance. But we find most of it's air. Most of it doesn't mean anything. And it won't mean anything in the long run. What are we investing in that lasts for eternity? That isn't just floating away in nothingness. C.S. Lewis said, aim at heaven and you'll get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you'll get neither. And yet so many people, and even Christians, are aiming at earth, trying to get everything they can here. And it's a failing enterprise. In verse 27, he says, Labor not for the meat that perisheth, but for the meat which endureth unto everlasting life. There's a Bible principle here that I don't want you to miss. When the Bible gives a thou shalt not command, it is always only there to clear the way to do a thou shalt command. And we, we as Baptists with standards and rules and we... We hear these things that we're not supposed to do, and sometimes we get a little obsessed with the thou shalt nots of the Bible. We can't do this, we can't do that as a Christian, and uh, so all these different standards God sets before us. The thou shalt nots of the Bible are not our focus. The thou shalt nots are there so to remove the distractions so we can do the thou shalts of the Bible. And that's really what it's there for. So here he says to not labor after meat that perishes. That's the thou shalt not. And uh, then that negative the, is done, that thou shalt not is there, so that we will have the time and the energy to labor for the spiritual. That's the thou shalt. You see what I'm saying? But Because what happens is if we are constantly laboring after the things of the world, we're not going to labor for things of heaven. 
We're going to labor for spiritual things. You're going to do one or the other. The Jesus even said it. You cannot serve God and mammon. You're going to have to make a choice at some point. You have to choose a side what you're going to live for. It, we, when you determine your priorities, ask if it will matter in eternity because so many things in this life do not matter a hill of beans in eternity. It'll just pass away. Now he says, labor for that meat which endureth the everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you. In that little statement there, we see four great salvation truths. I don't want you to... I'm sorry, three great salvation truths. The Son of Man will give you. In case you mistake this and think that salvation can be labored for, it can't. It's a gift. Everlasting life is that which Christ will give to those who are seeking it. Second, salvation is eternal. We see that in the word everlasting. Uh, that tells us how long salvation will last. Salvation does not expire. It does not lose its warranty. It does not decline in value. It does not end. It is forever. How foolish then it is for us to spend our resources on things that will pass away. It'll all be gone one day. Thirdly, we see that salvation is available unto you, he said. The gospel message is given to the world. Romans 10, 13, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. I like that word, whosoever, because it includes you and it includes me. Regardless of who you are, where you are, what you have done, where you are from, salvation is available for you through Jesus Christ. So when Jesus said this, this prompted from them the second question. Let's look at it. They said, what shall we do? This is in verse 28. What shall we do that we might do or that we might work the works of God? This question pleases the flesh. The flesh likes to feel that it can work its way to heaven. This is what people still hope and try and desire for today. What must I do to get to heaven? Remember the rich young ruler came to God and asked that, Jesus and added, what must I do? This is something that then and now is programmed into us. We think we have to do a certain amount to gain our way to heaven. So they'd say to Jesus, you did a miracle. Now tell us what we have to do to do the works of God. Jesus' answer was very instructive. This is the work of God, that ye may believe on him whom he has sent. They said, what do we have to do? We have to do something. He says, no, no, you have to believe in someone. Because salvation and heaven, and quite frankly, the victorious Christian life, does not rest in what you do, it rests in someone that we put our faith and trust in. And that is so important for us to understand. Because today, by the way, John loves the word believe. The word believe is in the New Testament 241 times. And 107 times alone it's used by John. And 98 times in the book of John. He loves the word believe. And uh, it, the, the, uh, today, people are so much in that first category, the do category, but, but Scripture is so plain, Ephesians 2.9, not of works, lest any man should boast. You see, here's the problem with good works. Here's the problem when you get to good works. How good? Because if you say, good works will take me to heaven, or good works will please God, how good are we talking? Are we talking, because there's got to be a standard, right? So how good? If you say good works get you to heaven, how good do those works have to be? Uh, do you have to be as good as me? Or even better? What are you laughing for? That's not a, this is not the place to chuckle. Or do you have to be as good as Brother Corey? Now we can laugh, amen? All right, uh, no, what is the standard? Because if we have 
if, if we say we have to be good, how good are we talking? Well, Jesus helps with this question in Mark 10, 18. Rich young ruler came to him and says, Good master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? There's that question again. What shall I do? That's where people are. That's where your neighbors are. That's where your coworkers are. You ask him the question, do you think you'll go to heaven when you die? Yeah, I think I'd go to heaven. Why? Because I'm a good person. I do good things. It's not in what we do. Anyway, so he asked, what must I do? And then Jesus said unto him, why callest thou me good? There is none good but one that is God. Uh-oh. There we find the standard. The standard is God. Can you measure up to him? Absolute holiness. Absolute perfection. Absolute love. Absolute integrity. No, we can't measure up to him. Now we begin to see our own failure when we start measuring up to the standard. That's why the Bible says in Romans chapter 3, verse 10, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. Why? Because God is the standard, and none of us can meet that standard. People like to think that they're good enough. And really, pride is at the foundation of that thinking. Works promotes pride, and pride promotes works. It is the humility of us coming to the area of our life saying, there's nothing I can do to save myself. Therefore, I put my trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's when salvation takes place. Now, the question they asked was works plural. Jesus answered with one work singular. The only work needed for salvation is faith and belief in Jesus Christ as Savior. Now, lest we think that verse 28, the question implied a true desire in them to please the Lord and, and uh, implied interest in spiritual things, that's canceled out by their next question, which we find uh, in verse uh, 30. This is question number three. What sign showest thou then that we may see and believe thee? What dost thou work? <laughs> There's times, you know, Jesus had power that I don't have. Um, I can't zap people. It would be nice to zap people, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it be nice to zap people? You wouldn't, they wouldn't know who did it. It would just be, you could just look at them and they would zap. Like, if you're sleeping right now in here, I could just give you a little shock. Jesus, if there's ever somebody or that Jesus would have wanted to zap, I think it would have been the, 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 this question. What sign are you going to show us? Are you serious? Were you here yesterday? I fed 20,000 people with a sack lunch. What sign are you going to show us? To show us that you are for real, basically is what they're asking. Isn't that something? Wanted another sign. That is ridiculous. It's a ludicrous question. What did you miss yesterday? Were you here? The demand is insulting. Asking Jesus to perform yet another miracle to justify believing in him? This is insulting to him. It called Jesus a liar when he claimed to be the Messiah, the one sent from God. They had just witnessed the day before one of the greatest miracles in all the New Testament. And then they said, hey, you going to give us a sign? Prove who you are? We still today, by the way, have no excuse asking God for a sign. We really don't. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, For the invisible things of him or the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood for by all things that are made, so that they are without excuse. All you got to do, look around and see what God has wrought. The Mona Lisa did not happen because a bunch of paint spilled off a shelf and just happened to make the Mona Lisa. A painting implies a painter. Amen? A building uh, implies an architect. 
And a creation like this involve, uh, or implies a creator. If we're, let's just not be ridiculous about it. What a sign. They ask for a sign. Even in our lives, the greatest wonders can occur, and unbelief makes us blind to them all. Evidence abounds, but unbelief will reject it. Because unbelief does not want to believe. Unbelief is not connected to proof. We've talked about that so often. I don't want to go into it again. But uh, unbelief, uh, it, w w the world doesn't need more facts. They need more faith. And that's what the, this crowd demanded a sign. And then they dictated, this <laughs> gets better and better. Then they dictated what that sign should be. Do it my way, by the way, is the language of unbelief. That's what unbelief says. I want you to do things my way. And again, they get to the stomach. Because we find here they aren't only, they aren't hungering and thirsting after righteousness. They're just hungry. Okay? That's all they are physically. Look at verse 31. Our fathers did eat manna in the desert. Now, a couple of things here. Moses himself in Deuteronomy 18.15 said that one day another prophet liked me is going to come to you. That'll be the Messiah. And in fact, Judaism, uh, they often referred to the Messiah, the coming Messiah as the prophet or the prophet or that prophet. In John chapter 1 verse 29, they asked John the Baptist, are you that prophet? In verse 14 of John chapter 6 here, we didn't read it, but they said this is of a truth, that prophet that should come into the world. Some of them were already equating Jesus with that prophet. But in verse 31, they are marginalizing what Jesus had done just the day before. Look what they said. Our fathers did eat man in the desert. So what they're basically saying, maybe somebody elbowed the guy and said, you idiot, did you miss the miracle yesterday? And you know what the guy said, or this is response. Our fathers did eat manna in the desert. Basically, Jesus, <laughs> Moses fed us for 40 years. He only gave us one meal. Moses fed us for 40 years, man in the desert. Now, manna is an amazing thing. If you've ever studied, I don't know what it tasted like, uh, but it, it was, it tasted very good. You could cook it up into different ways and prepare it in different ways. I suppose you could make manicotti. Amen? Manna souffle, different things like that. But here is the truth that they didn't grasp here. Manna was not the real thing. In verse 32, Jesus even said, Moses didn't give you this bread. God gave it to you. You think Moses is there whipping up a batch of manna? No, no. It fell from heaven. God gave it to you. But secondly there, uh, manna was just a temporary fix. Jesus Christ is the substance of what manna was in the shadow. But the crowd was not interested in the substance, but only the shadow. I'd like to, but I won't because everybody's getting hungry probably. Uh, we could park on that for a long time. People being interested in the shadow, but not the substance. Boy, that's the world today. But they completely missed the message of Jesus and walked away in unbelief. Look at verse 35. I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger. Can you imagine bread that tastes incredible? That makes you feel wonderful? Bread that satisfies you and is non-fattening? Amen? Wouldn't that be good? That's wonder bread right there. Uh, not being disrespectful, but Jesus is wonder bread. Amen? He is the bread of life. My Father giveth you the true bread, he said. Giveth, the bread is free. God does not sell this bread. You cannot buy this bread with money. That This says that salvation, again, is of grace, not of works. It took Jesus Christ and Calvary to pay for our sins. Sinful man does not have the wherewithal to buy salvation because it costs too much. Psalm 49, 6, They that trust in them their wealth 
and boast themselves in the multitude of their riches, none of them can by any means redeem his brother, nor give to God a ransom for him. Only God had the means by which to pay salvation. It was Christ who paid it all. And then we see this bread is divine. Verse 33, the bread of God. This bread came from God's oven. Uh, this, it was his idea. It was his invention. It was not an invention of man. Man could not have devised a means of redemption. We see his attempt all over the world with these religions that we, that we see. I don't know how many, probably hundreds and thousands of religions are across the world today. This failed attempt of man trying to reach God, it will always fail unless we believe in a place or a, uh, believe the Bible where God reaches down to man. And we see the failure of religion all throughout. This bread is divine. Uh, verse 33, this bread of God giveth life unto the world. The bread gives real life. Sin kills. Salvation gives life. Man, in his wickedness, will reverse God's assessment of evil. The Bible talks about that, calling evil good and calling good evil. And so when man describes his vile, sinful deeds, he is said to be living it up. There was a 1950s slogan, uh, during the 1950s, a slogan, where there is life, there's Budweiser. This is an example of that perversion. But that person's not living it up. They're dying. That's what sin does. Sin kills. Sin, uh, sin does not give life. It's not give blessing. It kills. It destroys. But this bread is satisfying. Verse 35, He that cometh to me shall never hunger. He that believeth on me shall never thirst. Christ satisf satisfies those who come to him will never be disappointed. He will satisfy their hunger and thirst spiritually. Uh, the world does not have bread like that, friend. The world's bread may look attractive, but it is full of death and destruction. Then let's look at the rejection. After all these wonderful truths from the lips of our Savior, you'd think the people would flock to Jesus and accept him, but they didn't. Uh, they started to become hostile toward him. Eventually they left him. The first thing they did is reject his person. Follow this progression here. Then the Jews, verse 41, murmured at him because he said, I am the bread which come down from heaven. Several things bothered them. The fact that he said came down from heaven, this would uh, indicate Christ's deity and his virgin birth, which unbelief does not like those doctrines. Look at the basic, uh, look at the religions of man. Very few of them believe in a virgin birth because that's saying that God is, uh, Jesus was God. Many man-made religions uh, reject that. In verse 42, this murmuring has a scornful ring to it. They said, look what it says, verse 42, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose mother and father we know? We know this guy. Who does he think he is? So they first rejected his person. They saw him as nothing more than the son of Joseph and Mary. The second thing they did was reject his power, verse 52. Now, if the identity of Christ is rejected, his ability will be rejected forthwith. Because if we don't accept who he is, then we certainly can't accept what he can do. Amen? So if he is not God, he cannot pay for our sins. And so uh, they, they immediately rejected his power. This man, in verse 52, that speaks of scornful disbelief. Uh, and then, so we see that rejection. Look at the leaving then. When people reject Christ, eventually they'll loathe him. And loathing is followed by leaving. Jesus lost his popularity with the majority of the people. Don't feel bad, dear Christian, if your testimony or your life is rejected by those around you because of what you believe. 
because you're in good company. So did Jesus. Jesus lost many people that were following him. Look at what they said in verse 60. This is a hard saying. This was too hard for them to make any sense to them. Of course, they lacked understanding because they lacked faith. They lacked faith because they wanted proof. They wanted a sign after what they had just seen. Many people today still complain about the Bible being boring or hard to understand. The problem is not the Bible. The problem is the person. Amen? Uh, the Word of God is, uh, is, is everything that we need. Verse 61, we see that Jesus knew what they were saying amongst themselves. No murmurer will ever hide their murmuring from Jesus Christ. He can read our thoughts. Look at verse number 66. John chapter 6, verse 66, or 666. I think it's interesting that in a verse 666, it shows man rejecting God and going his own way. Isn't that interesting? Look at what it says. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. Uh, that is uh, the... the, the word there are many, the vast majority of the crowd did not stick it out. It's always been this way, friends. The majority is not with Christ. Never have been. At the final count, only 12 that day stuck it out with Christ. One of them was a traitor. If the truth be known, our churches really are no different today. Like Jesus' crowd, there's a great lack of devotion there. Sometimes, some people will come, in fact, Pastor Forsberg talked about it in Sunday school this morning. Some will come and, and they'll partake, and that's good. Again, we want everybody to be here. That's a blessing. But but the motive is between you and God, and that's what should concern you, not me. I'm just glad you're here. Amen? Uh, but with, with us, we should look at why we are going. And folks will go to church when it's convenient. They'll serve when it's convenient, but they won't sell out. They'll maybe even be involved, but certainly not committed, like the kamikaze pilot who flew 50 missions. He was involved, but he wasn't committed. Amen? That's a lot of Christians. And look who left Christ. Some of the word here is disciples. His disciples went back. The word disciple was well, those who claimed to be a follower of Christ. They were those not only outwardly saying they were his, but they were, they were not the bums. They were not the wicked who had nothing to do with Christ or religion. These are the religious crowd. These are the ones who were supposedly with him. How committed are you to the cause of Christ? What will it take to make you quit? That's really the measure of a man. Not so much in what he does, but what it takes to make him quit. What does, how much does it take for you to go back? And I like how it says it, they went back. In fact, the world even today calls it progress when a person forsakes Christ and religion uh, after secularism, but the Bible has it right. Leaving Christ is always going back, never going forward. Second Peter 2.22, they, the sow that was washed to her wallowing in mire. That's what going back looks like. There's nothing impressive about leaving Jesus. Look at this tender moment now in verse 67. Oh, this, this has to be the result of a broken heart of a Savior. Then said Jesus unto the twelve, will you also go away? Now just stop and think. We are 24 hours removed from 20,000 people being fed by Jesus. The longer he talks, the more of them filter off. The more of them filter off. Go, keep going away. Now, this is this is something that I've thought much about as a pastor. We we pray and agonize over these things, but we are not seeking here at Bible Baptist Church simply 
to build a crowd. I like having people. People matter. Amen. God even put a, put a book in there called Numbers. Or he likes numbers as well. I'm a big numbers person. I like, we, every week I look at how many we had and, and whether it's, I like that. Numbers are important. And, uh, but we're not looking at doing whatever we can just to build a crowd because that's certainly not what Jesus did. Jesus had a crowd. 20,000 people. And then when he started preaching the truth of God's word and the truth about who he is, people started leaving. And there are people that will not come here because of what is preached from the Word of God. And we try to say it as it is and call out sin. Uh, you know, we try to be honest and truthful about it. I don't do you any favors by covering up sin in the Bible. Amen? Nor does anybody. And so, we, I am looking, at, I'd love to have 10,000 people that are fired up about serving God. But I don't want just, uh, we want to build people who are serious about serving God and want to do it by giving the truth. Amen? That's what Jesus did. And here he is, 20,000 people, and he's got 12 left. He says, will you also go away? We, I go to a lot of church uh, conferences and clinics and different things. I constantly immerse myself as people in any, uh, any field need additional training. Amen. I do too. I like to go and, and get new uh, ideas and such. Um, I've never had a clinic how to lose 19,000 988 people in one day. That's what Jesus did. Will you also go away? I love Peter's answer, verse 68. This, to me, I, I like this because just knowing Peter the way I think I know him, I don't think he's thinking here because Peter didn't do much thinking. He just kind of blurted this out, but he gave a great truth in it. He says to him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of life. What a blessing. The, the loyal crowd was devoted to the person of Jesus Christ here, Paul, Simon Peter and these others, and uh, they, they were not interested in following anyone else. He says, to whom shall we go? Who else can give us what you give us, Jesus? Can I answer that question? Nobody or no, no thing can give you what Christ can give you. Devotion to Jesus Christ is a hallmark of Christianity. Oh, religions have their other hallmarks. They have uh, Catholicism likes to center on Mary. Mormons like to focus on Joseph Smith. Muslims want to emphasize Muhammad. Charismatics put their main focus as the Holy Spirit. But true faith is devoted to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Those faithful to, to Jesus Christ stay when everyone else leaves. To be enthusiastic about Jesus when there's 20,000 people eating and cheering the Lord, that's one thing. But to be followers of Him and be faithful and committed when everybody is gone but you, that's another thing entirely. But they said, where else are we going to go? Will you also go away? I ask you that question that Jesus asked so many years ago. I ask you that today. Will you also go away? The truth is, we have the same answer as Peter had. There is no one else we can go to. There is no one that offers the fulfillment of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no one that gives us the promise of eternal life. There's no one that gives us victory over sin. Nobody can give us what Jesus gives us. And so I echo what Peter said. There is no one that gives us what you give us. Where are we going to go? Amen. I love that answer. If you don't know Him today, He waits for you. There's no one that offers what He offers. That's why I commit my life 
to telling people every day, every Sunday, every time I get a chance to preach when I meet somebody, what the Lord Jesus Christ can do for you. Can I just tell you today, He satisfies, He fulfills, He is the bread of heaven. Thank God for the bread that quenches all of our hunger and all of our desires, spiritually speaking. He is and always will be the best thing before sliced bread. Amen? So every head bowed, every eye closed. Let me ask you this today, friend. Have you ever partaken of this bread? Do you know that you know that you know you're on your way to heaven? Have you, made, uh, have you accepted Christ as your Savior? Are you His? There may be someone in here, no, one, I'm gonna, no one's looking around. I'm not going to point you out or embarrass you. I just want to pray for you. If you're here today and you say, Preacher, I don't know for sure if I'm on my way to heaven. I'm not sure. Would you pray for me? You just slip up your hand, let me pray for you. I'm just not sure. Thank you so much. What about you, dear Christian? Have you, uh, have you thanked the Lord lately for the bread of heaven? Have we been taking advantage of serving Him the way that we should? Have we been, have we been putting our efforts into temporal things instead of eternal? What a waste! What a spinning of our wheels. Would you stand along with me as she begins to play? Keep your heads bowed, eyes closed. Altars open. If God spoke to your heart, would you come today? There'll be somebody.